You know, today we're continuing our series, Good for Business, which is all about identifying the path towards what really gets us ahead in this world. That maybe, just maybe, it's not about, okay, I'm going to live the Christian life in church, but then when I get into the work world, when I get into this world, that I need to put all those uh, God's way aside because it's not going to help me get ahead. But maybe, just maybe, if we follow his path, that is the best path towards success in this world. And today we're going to be talking about a determined work ethic. You know, when I was in high school, my first job was in this department store called Ames. And I don't know if you guys remember that. It was kind of like a Kmart. And I worked in the electronic department. I loved that role because what I tended to do was when I showed up to work, every once in a while when the customers came through, I would deal with the customers. But me and the other people that worked in the electronics department, our favorite thing to do was whenever there was a new shipment of movies that came in, we kind of went through the shipment, shipment and identified which movies we really wanted to kind of watch. And then we would take those, and we had this little secret stash underneath one of the shelves that the managers had no idea about. And let me tell you something. On Friday night when the managers weren't there, you know, putting in Top Gun and cranking the sound system to, to 10, to max, it was the most amazing thing. You should have seen the customers run out of there when the jets came flying over. I mean, it was awesome. But I'll never forget, over the course of my time working at Ames, you know, I felt like I wasn't being treated well. I felt like I wasn't, um, you know, really appreciated. It, it really wasn't becoming enjoyable, so I decided to quit. And one day after I was clocking out, I went and found my manager who was in another aisle, and I told her I was putting in my two weeks' notice, and then she started to get mad at me and started yelling at me and, and fussing at me about how me and all the other teenagers just take advantage of her and, you know, uh, and all this stuff. And, and to be honest, at my young teenage years, I, don't, I didn't always make the right choice, and, and I was a little um, uh, disappointed with how she treated me. And so the last day I was supposed to work, I called in sick. Yeah, I didn't always have the best work ethic. I really didn't. But you know, today we're going to be talking about that. Because in all things, our work ethic really matters in our journey with Jesus. It really does. In fact, look at what the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. He writes here, We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy, they are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. You see, as Americans, I feel that we have fallen into a very serious trap. You know, that... that is expecting like we're owed something, like we're deserves, deserved something, that we should be given a certain way of living. You know, many of us, especially those of us who are younger adults and younger, we kind of see what our parents achieved in all their years of working, and somewhere along the journey, we think we, as soon as we walk out of college, get exactly what they've taken a lifetime to achieve. And you know what? It just doesn't work that way. But yet in our society, we've come to this point of believing that we are owed something or it should just be given to us because, well, we exist. And in an article on thestreet.com, Chris Matinko asks this question, have Americans gone convenience crazy? 
You know, the truth is that we all bought into the mindset that time is money. And because time is money, we value every second we have, and we're going to try to find the most convenient way to make the most of this moment in time to get all the benefits that we possibly could with our time. And studies are revealing that adults, especially young adults, are willing to spend more on com- to, for convenience. And oftentimes we're increasing our budgets financially, our day-to-day costs, simply to make life easier so we can save some time. I, I mean, I, I'll be honest, I struggle with this too. I think it's a struggle for many of us. I struggle with the convenience idea. You know, as a driver, I often look for the most convenient gas station, not necessarily the gas station that's two cents cheaper. You know, I look for the drive-thrus because I don't want to jump out of the car. I got too much to do. It's quicker to go through the drive-thru. Or when I purchase something for my house, I'm not the most uh, uh, savvy with putting things together. So I look for the convenience of the installation package that the department store provides. And in many cases, for a lot of us, convenience has become the ultimate goal. But is convenience always necessarily a good thing? I think we need to be honest with ourselves at some point and ask that question, is convenience always good? Howard Devorkin is a certified public accountant and chairman of a website called Debt.com. And he said, as a financial counselor, I actually encourage shopping efficiently. However, now I see people buying groceries at high-end gourmet markets because, as one client told me, the parking is easier and the checkout lines are shorter. Isn't that the mindset of the convenient lifestyle? I mean, we truly have become a society that is convenience crazy. It was once written by a blogger out of England. He wrote, Americans grew so used to seeing a steady stream of labor-saving advances that, in fact, by the 60s, they had come to expect machines to do pretty much everything for them. Now, before we claim to be offended... Let's pause and ponder this thought for just a moment. Have we become so consumed with the notion of convenience? You know, has convenience become our focus, our most uh, top priority in our life? And is this a good thing? Or maybe, just maybe, are there some potential pitfalls to the ultimate goal of Convenience. I mean, from home to work and to our faith, jot this down, down in your notes, convenience has become the anthem of the American trap. Convenience has become the anthem of the American trap. You know what tends to happen is we have certain lifestyle expectations that we all dream up that we want. Yet we expect our lifestyle expectations with minimal cost or effort on our part. And this is where the idea of convenience comes into play. You know, my friends, convenience comes at a very significant cost. We've grown to believe that convenience is a good thing. Why is that? Because time is 
money. But if we take an honest evaluation, convenience in some ways has developed a sense of idleness. Not idleness in the sense of, oh, there's a God before me, but idleness, like a hibernation, if you will, in our attitudes and in our actions. And the pursuit of convenience has transformed our attitudes and it has transformed our lifestyle habits. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians, Paul deals with this very struggle. This isn't a struggle that's, that's unique to our culture today. It's a struggle of mankind from the existence that, we've, that man has been on the face of this earth. And Paul deals with this struggle thousands of years ago as he identifies the issue of idleness. And he identifies two types of idleness. The first is the faith idleness, our faith idleness. You know, the history of the church has gone through some significant achievements over time. As we talked about last week, in the Old Testament, the people strived to follow the law. Why? Because they wanted to make themselves right before God. But over time, as we talked about last week, they realized that this was unachievable on their own. And that's why God sent Jesus to the cross And then the new covenant came to be. And in the New Testament, which is the new covenant based upon God's, Jesus' work on the cross, we see people like the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter and others like Peter and James and so many other people who advance the kingdom of God through intense persecution of their day. And oftentimes the letters that we read that Paul wrote, he wrote while in prison because of his efforts to advance the kingdom of God. And we fast forward through the history of the church, and so many other people have gone from the days of the New Testament till now. And we fast forward to the early 1500s. And there we run into a guy by the name of Martin Luther. See, Martin Luther was a man who was, was, a, was practicing to become a leader in the church, but he was really struggling with the leadership of the church of that day and the direction of the church, and he felt things were becoming corrupt And one of the biggest issues was the fact that the leadership of the church in that day were the only ones capable of interpreting the scriptures from their original Greek. And Martin Luther said, this can't be because the average person should be able to read the scriptures on their own. And on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther hung the 95 Thesis on a church door in Germany. These were propositions to to try to reform the church to the way the church should be. And it started what was known as the Reformation Movement. And great leaders of the church in that time period, under great distress and persecution, strived to advance the kingdom of God. Fast forward into the 1800s. The church now moved into the new land of the Americas. And here, while it was in this land, the great division began to happen, not just in our nation, but within the churches. And, great, and, and things were starting to happen. And other leaders of that day, like a man by the name of Alexander Campbell, came up and said, listen, we got to unify the church. God's broken by the disunity. We need to unify, and we need to restore the church to the way it was that we see in the early church, in the book of Acts, you know, where the Bible speaks, we speak. Where the Bible is silent, we are silent. We are Christians only. We're not the only Christians, but we are Christians only was the motto they strive for. And, and they began what was known as the restoration movement to get the church back to restoring to the book of Acts, the early church days. And that's, that's what they strive to do through intense persecution and difficulties. And throughout the world and throughout history, the church advanced through the heavy labor of individuals 
generally during extreme times of persecution. In America, America was founded upon religious freedom. And that is a great, great thing. But along the course of history, freedom has transformed faith into a convenience that led faith down the path of idleness, a hibernation, if you will, a slowdown. Look at verses 6 through 7 of 2 Thessalonians 3. Paul writes, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you. You see the path that Paul describes there? Our idleness leads to disruption, which eventually pulls us away from the teachings that God gave to us, the standards that he called us to live by. And before you know it, in our convenient state and idleness of the faith, we tend to pick and choose which path we want to follow in God's standard, and we kind of shift our priorities to match how we want to live, the lifestyle expectations that we have, rather than making him the priority of who we are and what we do. That's the struggle with faith idleness. The second type of idleness that Paul identifies in 2 Thessalonians is work idleness. Is work idleness. Look what he says in verses 8 through 10. Nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we could, would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. The one who is not willing to work shall not eat. Did you catch that? Those are some very strong words from the Apostle Paul. Now, please, don't get confused. Don't misinterpret what Paul is trying to say here. There are times and there are situations where individuals are unable to work. Maybe it's a medical, uh, medical condition. Maybe it's some other reason that they are unable to work. And using this verse to make an accusation towards those who are unable to help themselves is unbiblical and it is wrong. That is not what Paul was implying here. However, there are occasions when we find ourselves working the system. There are occasions where we're trying to find ways to get by to get the most benefits with the least amount of effort. For honors with ourselves, we've all probably found ourselves in that situation at some time or another. You know, we, we, we search for ways to achieve those benefits with no efforts, and that, my friends, is the tendency of laziness. That's what Paul is describing here. For example... You know, I could go home 
And this afternoon when I walk into the doors, I could see the dishes piling up in the sink, all the dirty dishes. I could see the, the laundry overflowing in the, in the bin. And let me just tell you something. My wife is awesome. And I know without a shadow of a doubt, she can't sit still when, that's, when those things are piling up. She has to take care of it. And walking in, knowing that there's a game on or highlights to catch, I could feel and believe that, you know what, when my wife gets home, she's going to take care of it. She'll get the dishes done. She'll do the laundry. So I just want to sit back and relax and catch the game. Would that be fair? Not too much, right? I, I'm probably going to get myself in trouble when I get home today. She's going to be leaving dishes just for me to see if I practice what I preach, right? <laughs> but here's the deal. In society... If we have the ability to participate in society, then God's standard is that we participate. That's his standard. We have to have the ability and the willingness that if we have the ability to take care of our own selves. That's what God desires. You know, my friends, we stand on the backs of those who have sacrificed for the freedoms that we have, which is an amazing thing. That's what we celebrated just a few days ago, both as a nation. You know, on July 4th, I took some time to, to read through again the story of our, of our flag and the national anthem, the Star-Spangled Banner. And Francis Scott Key, if you were familiar with the story, who wrote those words, was sitting on a boat with, uh, that was under, under English rule. He was trying to get the captured people on this boat to be freed. And they came back and said, hey, that's great, but there's an unfortunate problem. That flag over there in that fort has to come down. We are going to destroy that fort. And then what, what they told Francis Scott Key is, we're giving them the ultimatum. They have to take that down. And if they don't, we will take it down by force. We will bomb it and shoot it until it falls. And so the people in the fort were unwilling to take that flag down. And all the people on the boat were just waiting for Francis Scott Key, who was telling them exactly what was happening. And all through the night, they were praying, praying for that flag to stay, praying for the freedom that they had. And over and over again, through the night, they watched the bombs go after the flag and just focused on the flag. And it never fell. So early the next morning, when daylight came, they all went over there to, find, to see how in the world did this flag stand. All beat up, that flag was remaining in a tilted angle. When they got to the place where the flag was posted, they found the, re the reality of sacrifice. You see, what happened was, at times the flag did fall. But each time the flag fell, a man from the fort ran out there, and he picked it up. And he held that flag until he was killed. And as soon as that man was killed and the flag fell again, someone else came and grabbed that flag and picked it up until they went through the entire night. That flag was standing upon the bodies of those who sacrificed for it to stand. You see, we stand on the backs of those who sacrificed before us to provide us what we have today. And along with that, as followers of Jesus, we also stand on the backs of those who sacrificed greatly for us. 
ultimately the greatest sacrifice was Jesus who came into this world to die on that cross so that we have the ability to live for all eternity within his blessings and what he provides. And as we move forward, as I already talked about Paul and Peter and so many others that were persecuted for the faith, we stand on the backs of those who have gone before us in great sacrifice. And in the Old Testament, David said that he would not offer something to God that cost him nothing. Yet oftentimes, an attitude of selfishness develops when we gain things that cost us nothing. You know, in many cases, we have forgotten or maybe we never even realized the true reality of sacrifice. Many of us have what we have because of those who sacrificed for us. And we've lost the reality of sacrifice, both as a, as a citizen, but more importantly, as a follower of Christ. Sacrifice is everything. And we've fallen into the trap of idleness where we believe that we deserve this at no cost to our own. Now, you may be saying, okay, Bill, I get it. I, I get it. I, you know, I, I don't want to live this idle life. I don't want to live in hibernation. I, I want to do my part. But what's the big deal if, if I strive for convenience? What's the big deal if I'm a little bit lazy or, or whatever it might be? Well, here's the big deal that Paul highlights in 2 Thessalonians. Jot this down. Idleness leads to a disruptive lifestyle. Idleness leads to a disruptive lifestyle. Look what Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. And then in verse 11, Paul writes these words. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. You see, my friends, idleness has become disruptive because it transforms our hearts. And then from there, it transforms our focus and it adjusts our attitudes. And instead of being busy, of getting things accomplished, we become busy bodies. And we need to understand the difference between a, what, what it means to be busy and what it means to be a busy body. You see, a busy body is a person who meddles in the affairs of others. Sometimes this meddling is under the idea of helping, but usually the help is unwelcomed or uninvited. And busybodies are often people who are dissatisfied with the level of drama in their own lives, and they gain satisfaction by becoming involved in the problems of other people. And then what tends to happen when we get down the path of being a busybody is then gossip tends to overtake. And gossip becomes the staple or the norm of people who are busybodies. But it usually is camouflaged in the church world as a prayer request or in the work world as I'm just offering you advice. I'm just trying to help you out. And you know, to be honest, some of us struggle at recognizing ourselves as busybodies. So a few questions can really help you determine if you're truly helping or if you've become a meddler, if you've become a busybody. And some of the questions that you may ask yourself is, is this any of my business? Ha has God given me this assignment? 
Am I, am, am I qualified to be involved with this? Or, or is my true motivation to help? Or do I just want to feel like I'm needed? That's the big one. Be honest with yourself. Are you truly trying to help or do you just try to fill the void of wanting to be needed? You know, the answer to these questions can help us determine whether our involvement in the affairs of others is in fact helpful or meddling, a busybody. And if we recognize that our real motivation is the enjoyment of being in the center of other people's issues, it may be time to deal with the insecurity that's truly engaging your heart. And last week we talked a lot about the insecurities and the issues with with insecurities and how they can overwhelm our hearts at times. But the bottom line is this. When we become idle in our faith, we often become more focused on what the church or what other people are doing wrong around us, how their faith is wrong, how, how they taught something is wrong, or whatever it might be, or how the church is not meeting my self-professed needs, or whatever it might be, rather than truly exploring your gifts and your God-given talents and how God desires you a part of his mission, which is to advance his kingdom. That's how idleness becomes disruptive in the church. And when we become idle in our work, we find ourselves putting in half effort. You know, we find ourselves spending a little bit too much time looking on social media than actually getting our job done. And then we find ourselves complaining about how the company is letting us down or how other people, other employees are are not doing their jobs or whatever it might be. And by doing so, what we have a what we have just done is we have overlooked our own heart, we've overlooked our own attitude and actions, and we then find ourselves making excuses for giving partial effort or partial commitment. Please know something. In all we do, God desires that we give our very best. The heart of God is that in everything you do, whether it's in your, your service to the church or the job you do one, Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, that you give your very best in all you do. That's his heart. Look what Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tiring of doing what is good. Never tire for doing what is good. Our ultimate goal should not be convenience. Our ultimate goal should be not how can I get by with the little effort and get the most reward. Our ultimate goal should always be as followers of Christ in this moment, I am never going to stop doing what is good. I am always going to give my best. Always. Whether it's serving in the church or if I'm sitting in front of a, in a cubicle on Monday through Friday, I am going to give my best. Why is that? Why is that so important? Because as representations, uh, a representation of Jesus, as followers, that's what we are. No matter the circumstance, people see our efforts. And when things are not going our way, we still give our best. I, I look at the Apostle Paul who, who wrote this letter. 
And so often in prison, he wrote these letters saying, give your best. Never stop doing what is good. I never read Paul's, read Paul's letters to say, hey, I know you were wronged, and you got you to go, go fight for your right. You got to go stand up for yourself. What I see in him saying is, in all circumstances, you give your best. The world's going to wrong you at some point. But never tire from doing what is good. Always give your best. Why? Because ultimately, I don't work for my boss. I don't do what I do for you, and you don't do what you do for me or for your boss. Everything you do, if you're a follower of Christ, you do for an audience of one, and his name is Jesus. And so whenever I work, whether I'm flipping burgers, sitting in the cubicle, or serving at the church, I'm doing this for him, to make him proud, to make the most of this opportunity for what he desires. And when you give your best in all that you do, God will begin to do amazing things within your own heart and through your life. You know, oftentimes here we say we want to let God love us and love others through us. Ultimately, that's what that means. When you give your best in all circumstances, God will begin to transform your heart, your, your attitude, your mindset, your focus, and you'll begin to see blessings that you never understood before. You'll find fulfillment in your heart that you never experienced before. And then when you take that step, you will begin to see God do tremendous things through your life as well. Things that you never dreamed of. Just be faithful to him. Never tire from doing what is good and see what doors he begins to open up. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you so much because you're truly an amazing God. And we come before you right now and we just praise you. You never stop doing what is good because you ultimately went to the greatest sacrifice for us. And Lord, right now, I just pray for each person here. I don't know their circumstances, but you do. And Lord God, forgive us for when, when we make convenience or kind of uh, trying to get our own way the most important thing. But Lord, may we, in all that we do, give our best to bring glory to you so that we can find and experience the fulfillment that you want to provide and so that we, you can use us to make your name known, to reveal your hope to this world. Lord, we thank you so much for being the example that you are. And we thank you so much for all the, the, those who have gone before us and the example they, lay, they, gave, they have given and the sacrifice they provided. And Lord, may we just faithfully follow in those footsteps to honor you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.